Hey, super friends, my name is Neil and welcome to episode 65 of the Get Your Comic Con podcast. We're here fortnightly-ish to bring you a slice of film, TV and pop culture goodness from our studio direct to your speakers. I am, of course, joined by my very own boy, Wanda Martin. Say hello, Martin. Hello, Martin. I have to apologise because we should have had a podcast out last week. We had to delay by a week. Why did we have to delay by a week? You did very well. I got COVID. Yeah, I have an actual confirmed case of COVID-19, which thankfully I'm now kind of getting over. You, however, despite the fact that we live together, haven't even managed to catch it. No. He says so flippantly after taking two tests that have proven negative. Uh, so yeah, thankfully I'm feeling much better. Um, if anybody saw the video I put on Twitter earlier in the week apologising for the fact we hadn't done a podcast... Um, I didn't have much of a voice. Thankfully, I have a bit more of a voice now, so we are back. We're going to be going through a few news headlines today. Then we have a couple of TV series to uh, review. And we're also going to talk a little bit about a certain cinematic trilogy, which has a new movie coming out just a little later this month. So let's get down to it. Let's get on with the news. living in the UK you will have woken up this morning to a brand new teaser for the upcoming Spider-Man semicolon across the spider hyphen verse part one uh, that is the sequel to uh, Spider-Man into the spider-verse this film is set to release in cinemas in October 2022 and is now confirmed to be the first part in a two-part storyline with the second part of across the spider-verse releasing in 2023 uh, so it's 7th of October 2022 for, for part one the film will once again star Shamik Moore as Miles Morales. Haley Steinfeld returns as Gwen Stacy. This film will also see the debut of Issa Rae as Jessica Drew, otherwise known as Spider-Woman. And Oscar Isaac will be returning as Miguel O'Hara, otherwise known as Spider-Man 2099. There are also rumours that Jake Johnson will be returning as Peter B. Parker from the first movie. So I'm intrigued by your thoughts on this, Boy Wonder. I sat you down to watch this preview a little earlier today. You weren't the hugest fan of the first film uh, in this burgeoning animated franchise. So what did you think of your first look at Across the Spider-Verse? It, it looked all right. I think you thought the animation was just a bit too much for you the first time around, didn't you? Yeah, it gave me a bit of a headache. I made me feel a bit sick watching it. It's heavily stylized, and it looks like they're doing something slightly different this time around. Both of the directors, so that's uh, Christopher Miller and Phil Lord, have done an interview with Entertainment Weekly where they've talked about the fact that this film will go, as the title suggests, across the Spider-Verse rather than the Spider-Men and women coming to Miles in his Earth. And each of the Earths is going to have a different kind of art style, which you get a little flavour of in this uh, trailer here. So there's going to be a lot more going on animation-wise this time. Oh, I'll have to have an antiemetic. <laughs> Would you like to explain what that is to anybody that's not well informed? Or travel pastel or something. Makes me feel a bit queasy. <laughs> Help you feel a little less sick. We don't know very much about the storyline in this film, uh, other than what we see in the trailer, which looks like Miles is going to be going on a bit of a journey across the Spider-Verse. No idea of who villains are, no idea of who else might turn up. Again, in the same Entertainment Weekly article, uh, Lord and Miller said that he'll be teaming up with friends old and new, so I guess we can expect to see a lot of new characters showing up. We know, as I just said, that uh, Spider-Woman will be turning up Jessica Drew, played by Issa Rae, but we don't have a chance to see her yet, so no character designs. This this trailer is really focused on just Hayley Steinfeld as Spider-Gwen and uh, Shamik Moore as Miles Morales. We don't even get to see him suited up for much of the first part of the trailer. So they're not giving very much away, and we obviously have a 10-month wait to see this film, so I, I would imagine there'll be plenty more to come in the meantime. But it's just a strong entry into the Spider-Verse, which is coming back. This is a lot of people's favourite Spider-Man movie, so it's going to be interesting to see what they do a second time around. And nice to know that we've got a third film on the way as well, so they're really investing in this animated universe. I really enjoyed the first film, so I'm really excited to see more from it. Uh, I wasn't sure what to expect from this trailer when they announced that it was going to be released, and then I was pretty bummed out that it was going to be released at 1.30 in the morning. But guess what? I woke up at 1.30 in the morning, so I actually saw it in the middle of the night and retweeted it. I must have convinced my brain that it was an important enough event that I needed to be awake at the time. So excited for more from Spider-Verse 2. Next up, we also have a brand new trailer for HBO Max's Peacemaker, starring John Cena. We now know that the series is going to debut on January the 13th in the US. 
we still don't have confirmed news as to where fans outside of territories where HBO Max is available will be able to see this. It's highly likely it will come to Now and Sky here in the UK, but unconfirmed for now, so watch this space. But brand new trailer. What did you think, Boy Wonder? It was all right. Um, it looks a bit nuts. Looks everything that Suicide Squad looked like, but in a serial TV format. Yeah. Do you feel like you've got a better idea about what's going on now that you've seen uh, this? They're calling this the official trailer, so this has kind of got a bit more story to it and stuff. It gives away a bit more. Potentially. I feel like you said that as if to say, I can't remember. No, I do. I mean, it gives some away. It doesn't give it all away, though. Oh, no. I mean, it, this is, I didn't mean in this completely lays all the cards on the table and we know exactly what's going on, but it gives you a flavour of the fact that he's wrestling with his conscience maybe a little bit and some of the actions of Suicide Squad. It's obviously going to focus quite heavily on his relationship with his dad, played by Robert Patrick. And it seems there's quite a comedy kind of duo dynamic going on between Peacemaker and uh, Vigilante. The bird. And Eagerly, yes. Who looks really well done in CGI. Because mm. I highly doubt that was a real bird they got to fly into the car. Well, you never know. I mean, they can be very well trained these days. That's true. They could have uh, they could have trained one, but uh, something tells me maybe not in this instance. Surely. We've covered off this show a few times on here, but just to rattle off in case you didn't know, John Cena returns as Peacemaker. As I just mentioned, Robert Patrick plays his father, Augie Smith. You've got Christopher Herodal as Captain Locke. Freddie Stromer as Adrian Chase, who's also known as Vigilante. Jennifer Holland and Steve G both return as Amanda Waller's lackeys from uh, The Suicide Squad. So Jennifer Holland plays Amelia Harcourt, who obviously has quite a strong history in the comics for anybody that knows those. And Steve G plays John Economos. You've got Danielle Brooks, who joins the cast as Leota Adebayo. Chiruki Awuji as Clemson Mern. Notes Lee as Judo Master. Lachlan Monroe as Larry Fitzgibbon. I'm reading from IMDb here, so this could be some quite interesting spoilery moments. Annie Chang as Sophie Song. Alison Araya as Amber. Elizabeth Faith Ludlow as Kia. I don't think there's anything major here that we don't already know about. Oh, we've got Philippa Collins as male nurse. Important. Not Impor- male nurse. Is that a hero what we don't know about? I could be. <laughs> not all heroes wear capes. No, not all heroes wear capes. Or no. eagles. Nice to see a male nurse involved as well, not just a female nurse. I'm sure that's... Is that good representation for you? It could be. It could be. Well, I don't know who it is. Who is it? Well, I don't know. It's just called Male Nurse. Well, we don't have to wait and see what the representation is like when we see him. I think what's really strong about this trailer is the fact that James Gunn has tried to inject even more character into the, the world of Suicide Squad. So it's not just another caper, although there is that element to it. It does seem like there's a lot more around uh, Peacemaker's family life and his home life and his backstory and how he got to where he is, even though this is a story set after the Suicide Squad. And it does seem like it's going to have an absolute buttload of humour in it as well. So I'm excited to see where they take it. It's just a shame that we don't know yet when and how UK audiences will be able to see it. Well, where can we see it? That's what I was saying. So we don't know uh, exactly where you'll be able to see it outside of HBO Max territory. So like the US and Canada and the few countries where HBO Max has gone. Chances are it will be Now TV or Sky here just because of that deal. That that's where most of that content goes here in the UK. But we don't know for definite yet. There's no real discussion about it outside of the US premiere yet. So we'll have to wait and see. I would imagine if they're hoping to sort of simultaneously launch it around the world we'll hear quite soon because it's January the 13th for it premiering in the US so it's not that far away I mean yeah. we are talking only just over a month till it premieres it's a matter of days a little bit more we've got to get through Christmas first well I mean not that far away no that's right well 20 days till Christmas as we're recording this days anyway <laughs> uh, are so you excited for Peacemaker well no it just worries me now 20 days till Christmas you finished your Christmas shopping I've enough to write my cards and everything <laughs> As I was saying, if you're excited for Peacemaker, let us know. You can find us on social media at Get Your Comic Con on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find me at Neil Varg on both platforms. And Martin is at BoyWonder1989. And that leads me into our last news story for this episode, which is the release of a brand new clip from Sony Pictures' Morbius. So this one is also not that far away. It's releasing in cinemas on the 21st of January 2022. So a little bit further away than Peacemaker. Uh, I don't need to tell you who this film stars. You've got Jared... I'm going to do it anyway. 
You've got Jared Leto as Dr. Michael Morbius. I don't need to tell you, but here they are. <laughs> Michael Keaton returning as Adrian Toomes. Matt Smith is also in this film, as well as Adria Ajona, Jared Harris, Tyrese Gibson, and I think that's it for the main cast list. Once again, IMDb put them in a funny order, so apologies if I've missed anyone. And it's directed by Daniel Espinosa. So this isn't a trailer. This is very specifically a clip from uh, a transformation scene where Michael Morbius, who's looking very frail at the beginning of the clip, goes all vampire baity and vampire. then transforms back into his human self, only buff. I mean, what more do you want? <laughs> I think the main thing to probably focus about this is what do you think about this uh, very visual effects heavy sequence? Do you think it's convincing enough? Do you feel like that was a very sickly man that became a vampire? Or do you feel like it was a very sickly man that became a CGI creation? Well, I've never seen that many sickly men become vampires. I don't have a lot of... Do you do you not have a lot of reference material? I don't have a lot of reference material for that. But, I mean, what they did, it looked quite good. I mean, as far as I can tell, there was a mixture of practical and Mm. computer-generated. I believe you are correct, yes. So I enjoy the practical more than the computer generation. Yes. It looked incredibly gory. It's very dark. I think my only concern is that... It's a vampire. I know that, and obviously sunlight, vampire, etc. But my only concern was that even though it was indoors, it was not very well... Maybe not very well is not the right word. It's very dimly lit, so you don't see a huge amount. And I just worry that much of the film will be like that. I want to see some of the vampire gore. You might see him. I mean, he was in the bowels of a ship, so... I know. It's just the fact that even... I mean, that was a lab in the bowels. Okay, you said barrels, barrels, barrels of a ship. Uh, I just feel like, you know, you might have had like a fluorescent light on somewhere rather than a couple of desk lamps. Well, I mean, I don't know. I've never been in the barrel of a ship, so. <laughs> One thing that I did really like was uh, once he does his transformation and breaks out of his cell and is attacking the, the crew of goons, he uh, knocks one of them to the ground, clearly kills the guy. And then the blood splatter stays on the camera for the rest of that shot till it changes. I don't know if you spotted that. I did not. Mm. Yeah, so I think he slashes the guy's throat and it sprays up and is in the bottom right of the frame across the camera. There's a splatter. And then the camera pans up and follows around the room just for a couple of seconds before it moves to a different angle. But before it moves to a different angle, they keep the blood splatter on the on the screen as if to try and sort of bring you into it a little bit more, which I quite like as a, a little added atmospheric effect. Very good. In the second trailer, there was a lot of purple effect around him. Do you remember there was, when he sort of zipped around, there was a lot of purple dust and particle effects that went around him. And there doesn't seem to be much of that here, again, because it's so dark. So it just feels a little devoid of colour, and I was kind of hoping it was going to be quite vibrant. Well, it's not finished, is it? Uh, I would hope it's finished, given it's due out in sort of six weeks. Well, maybe they're still tweaking. They they might well still be tweaking it down to the line. Uh, But it's good to know that you think this is encouraging and that this looks good. As I was worried that you would think it wasn't really worth watching. It's got a topless Jared Lowe. I mean, I'm there. And that's it for the news this week. Let's go on to the first of our reviews. So from here on out, because I always, always, always forget to do this, but from here on out, you can expect uh, spoilers for all of the projects that we're talking about. So we've got two TV series that we're going to be reviewing, and in betwixt those two wonderful series, we're going to have a little retrospective on the Matrix trilogy ahead of the release of The Matrix Resurrections, which is in cinemas on December the 22nd from Warner Brothers Pictures. But first up, going to throw a bit of a curveball that's going to make Boy Wonder here go, ooh. So first up, we are going to be discussing... The, I'm going to guess probably only series of this show that will be produced because I don't see why they would come back for more. But the uh, currently streaming on Disney Plus star series Dope Sick. <laughs> there it is. Uh, this one is written by Danny Strong, who you might remember as Jonathan from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, who has come a long, long way since then, and stars Michael Keaton, Rosario Dawson, Will Poulter, and Caitlin Deaver, to name uh, but a few. So... I sat you down. Actually, I started watching the first episode of this without you because I wasn't sure whether it'd be something you'd be interested in. And within about five minutes, realised that actually I hadn't anticipated that it was based on a sort of set of real life events. But 
I suddenly realised that actually I think this was going to be really interesting for you to watch. So I stopped and came back to it with you. And we've just finished watching uh, the the series finale. So you can currently stream episodes one to five on Disney Plus in the UK. In the US, it uh, it aired on Hulu and has completed airing. So there's less spoilers if you're in America. There's more spoilers if you're international. And so we have three episodes left to air here in the UK, which we have watched, but we won't discuss any plot points from those three episodes. So, Boy Wonder, initial thoughts on Dope Sick? Other than the fact that for the last few weeks you've been telling everyone to watch either Dope Stick, Dope Slick, uh, what else have you called it? Oh, I don't know. I just get. I just. I don't know why it is. I just can't get Dope Sick in my mind. It keeps coming out as Dope Stick or Slip or whatever S I can come up with at the time I'm trying to think of it. But did you enjoy it? Yes, I did. Would you say this is, and this is spoilers for when we do our end of year favourites, but would you say this is your TV series of the year? I think I probably would. I thought you might say that, yeah. So tell me why you enjoyed it so much. Um, It's a very difficult topic for me. Well, it's not really a difficult topic. This is a topic you talk about every day in your life. So for anybody who's not familiar with Dope Sick, this is the story of the pharmaceutical company Purdue, who were the inventors of oxycodone, which is a uh, opioid drug which is used for pain relief and became the central focus of the American, and then kind of globally, opioid crisis in the early 2000s. And it became investigated and becomes a very famous story about the Sackler family who owned Purdue. Uh, Sideline, Martin is a pain expert. That is his field of expertise. Yeah, okay. I wouldn't say I was an expert, but... Most people would say you're an expert. Well, it's my my area of interest and speciality. So how do you feel then, because you obviously knew a lot of this story anyway, how do you feel this was represented in Dope Sick? I think it's it's a very powerful story. It's a very emotive story, depending on which side of the coin you're coming from. Yeah. And I think what they've done is they've they've done a very good portrayal of the impact that it's had on individual families yeah and the and the level of destruction that these medicines can have yeah but it is a very one-sided view of the picture and there were times where watching the program i felt slightly uncomfortable because now that the narrative is changing slightly in that this was in America. Mm-hmm. The American health system is very, very, very different, different to ours. To any other health system in the world, especially yeah. ours, and the way in which the opioid crisis, or pandemic, or endemic, whatever you want to call it, has taken hold in the U.S. is not the same way in which it's taken hold here yeah, in the U.K. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of work because so my sort of area of interest is cancer pain, mm-hmm. and this program is very much focused on. Chronic pain. Chronic pain. Yeah. And um, we have they're very different viewpoints in how we try to sort of manage pain and our views of opioids. Yeah. And I do worry that sometimes if a cancer patient or somebody who's on these opioids and they're well managed on them and it's all very safe, they'll then hold on to this and it's, it starts to send the slightly wrong message. Yeah. And it can undo some of that. I know what you mean. So uh, for anybody who is less intelligent than Boy Wonder, who needs that explained in sort of layman's terms, this show very much puts the Sackler family, who at the time were the owners of Purdue, in a sort of villainous role. And although their motivations aren't to create a planet full of opioid-addicted I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, uh, like opioid-addicted sort of meth heads, uh, that was not what they set out to do, it it very much paints them in that sort of light and therefore makes the drug look as if it doesn't have any benefits because wherever you see anyone have been having benefits it then leads to them being addicted but that doesn't then touch on the millions of sort of end of life patients who are never going to get better who could take this kind of drug to gently pass away comfortably is that the right way to sort of say it oh i don't know is yeah, so it's just sort of it's having good pain management. Yeah, it's it doesn't show that there are situations where it can be used beneficially rather than it leading to what this show often shows that it leads to, which is heroin addiction and overdose. 
Yes, I mean, I think there are some, there's, there were a couple of really good points in the show that they sort of picked an app a little bit, but they didn't focus on it because, again, it wouldn't have made good TV. Um, and it would probably have made the, the the power behind the messages maybe a little bit less. So there was a couple of moments when they're like, oh, you know, actually the addicts aren't really using oxycodone because it's too expensive. So, yeah. going, so they then go to heroin or they go to meth, which is exactly what happened. So when the opioids, when the oxycodone was rife, it was very expensive, got harder to get a hold of, and then the meth dealers came in. Yeah. And then that's when the whole town sort of fell apart in a way. And there's a really interesting Louis Theroux documentary that goes into a small American town where mm. that, that thing happened. The oxycodone wave hit, and then the meth wave hit. Yeah. And then it becomes a whole other issue. So, But it was really interesting watching you watch it and see your sort of journey through it and some of the things you were saying to me. I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> well, because I fell into that trap of, well, this is evil. Yeah. And you were saying to me, oh, I hope you don't prescribe oxycodone. I'm thinking, oh, God. You I better not. I prescribe lots of oxycodone. <laughs> <laughs> so you get to see it from the point of view of quite a few different characters. And I think the way that they approach the cast in this is is really brilliant. So it's difficult to sort of, I, I guess Michael Keaton is probably the biggest name in it. And he is a small town general practitioner who is approached by pharmaceutical reps from the company and you know he is he's asked about what pain medications he prescribes to his patients and is brought in from the point of view of a doctor who begins to prescribe it you've then got uh peter sarsgaard who plays rick mountcastle who is a kind of u.s attorney who is on the periphery of this and is brought in to help try and investigate whether the pharmaceutical company is doing the right thing in the way they're promoting it then you have uh, Michael Stuhlberg as Richard Sackler, who is the, the president of Purdue and the inventor of the drug. So you see his point of view on the situation. And then you've also got uh, Will Poulter, who plays Billy Cutler, who is one of the the drug reps who is traveling around these small American towns trying to convince the doctors to to prescribe the drug. And then not to forget Rosario Dawson, who is uh, she plays Bridget Meyer, who is another agent from another part of the, the U.S. kind of system deo she yes who deo oh deo sorry <laughs> she's not an alien catcher she doesn't catch aliens in supergirl uh who is also investigating them and lastly you've got uh betsy mallon played by caitlin diva who is a uh a mine worker who is injured and becomes a patient who is prescribed oxy so there are a lot of different perspectives so I do think that the fact that they brought in multiple perspectives to the story helped to balance it out a bit but you could tell that the overall opinion of the production team was this drug bad, these people were bad that were, were shipping this drug out to the world. So I, th- I think they tried to keep it balanced, but I don't feel like they entirely kept it balanced, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, but then it's a very unbalanced story because to a degree Purdue were really horrible in sort of their sales tactics, the way they marketed mm. the drug, the way they pushed the drug, and the way they told their sales rep to push the drug was really quite horrific. Yeah. Um, to the point where now where that's just that would never happen because you know you'd be lucky if a, a farmer rep would be even willing to speak to you anymore because the fear of anything like that happening again is so high yeah so and this is what you explained to me that now everyone is too scared to, to prescribe that kind of drug so if you look at america in particular so i mean i went i was at a conference last year and there was a, a very eminent um cancer pain nurse there and she was sort of explaining her side of the story in that you know cancer patients with complex pain and at the end of their life they really struggle to get these prescriptions even filled because most pharmacies won't even stock them anymore and that's all opioids not just oxycodone so yeah you sort of you, you got the flip side where this drug was bad maybe it was probably marketed the wrong way it was pushed the wrong way it was given to the wrong patients but yeah now we're at the flip side where people who really need it and would really benefit from it can't get anywhere near the drug. Yeah. Because there's such a high level of fear and anxiety around it, which is understandable. Yes. So how do you feel about the structure of this show? So if you've watched any episodes of this so far, and this is not a spoiler, you will know that this uh, this show is structured very, very uh, complexly. It jumps from towards the end of the season up to this year all the way back to the 60s the noughties the 90s it jumps around and there is a wonderful on-screen kind of visualization to tell you when the year changes so it's not necessarily difficult to keep up with what year you're in but sometimes you could find it difficult to remember 
where you are in the overall narrative of the show in which year you're in. So how did how did you feel about the kind of the complex way that they presented the story? I think it was an interesting way to do it, but it was a case of if you blinked, you could have missed a jump from 2000 <laughs> to 1996. Yeah. And because it's the same characters and they don't really change appearance, it can be a little bit like, oh, are where are we now? I thought we were all oh, okay, we've just jumped again. Hmm. I agree. I, I didn't find it difficult to remember what year I was in, again, because of the on-screen visualisation. But yeah, if you if you blinked and you missed it, you could be a bit like, hang on a minute, weren't you just... You're with your husband and you were not with your husband a minute ago. So there's there's some personal stuff that goes on for each of the characters as well. You get a, to see a snapshot of their lives while they were involved in this whole scenario. It's not solely focused on on the drug itself, which is also, it's quite nice. It makes sure that everyone is very human within the situation, apart from maybe Richard Sackler, not the most human person on the planet. However, I do think that he would make an amazing Joker. Maybe, wouldn't he? So some, there was something very, again, well, I guess this kind of indicates to you how they portrayed Richard Sackler as the president of the pharmaceutical company, but we both agreed that we felt like he, the guy that played him, could have been a good Joker, which is <laughs> says a lot about the head of Purdue Pharma in the early noughties. Yeah, it's well well done to the man who played him because he had that sort of cool when he has that almost emotionless. Yeah, he's sense very of, stoic. I'm going to try and do the best here, but if you mess with me, then he had that sort of gleam of insanity in his eyes where he could easily carve a smile on your face, which yeah. he didn't do. But I think my only issue, apart from the fact that it did feel like they they wanted you to come out with a similar opinion to them, and by that by them I mean the writers. Um, I think my only issue was I wasn't I couldn't really figure out what it was that the Sackler family wanted or were trying to do so I didn't feel like he invented the drug to help people but I also didn't get the feeling that he invented the drug for anything else there was a very strong sense that he wanted to be the most successful person in the family but that again didn't feel developed enough that everything he did felt like it was just because he wanted to be better than anyone else so I didn't I don't really... And he didn't seem money-minded. So I don't really know what his motivations were or why he was doing what he was doing. I mean, they were telling him that they were making billions and billions of dollars. So they were then inventing stronger versions of the tablet that would cost more money. But he he didn't seem to kind of be like, yes, we're raking it in. This is amazing. Let's make more money. It was... I think he just wanted to be successful but that drive didn't quite feel strong enough for me i would agree yes i wouldn't have done a little bit more around him but then it's probably a hard person to get information around what happened at that time so i wonder yeah if that's a... true i doubt many people really coughed up exactly what was said in a lot of those rooms so it'd be interesting to see what the sort of source material was and mm. how they knew what was going on behind closed doors or if that was a bit of sort of interpretation yeah that might have been interpretation based on the evidence that was i guess presented at the the case against them interesting and it's not like i want him to be a mustache twirling villain or to think he's some sort of saint i just i just didn't feel like i understood him enough but maybe that's just how it it has to be what do you think about the cast then any massive standouts um i think they're all fantastic i mean mm. michael keaton yeah michael keaton is brilliant he was really excellent and that journey as well it's such a heroin journey and to see where he goes from the beginning to the end it's just really I felt quite choked up in the last episode. Yeah, oh, it's such a sad last. I mean, it's not a happy ending. That's all you need to say about it. Mm. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Any other standouts? I think Rosario Dawson is excellent. Yeah, I I would agree. She kind of gets a little bit lost towards the end. She does disappear slightly in the last three episodes, only to return sort of conveniently in the last one. That would be my only thing there. Her story is maybe the most chunked up as well. Because you do follow her from single, dating, married, divorced. And to say she's divorced is not a spoiler because I think you find that out in the first episode. And then follow her complete journey to how she got to where she is at the beginning, at the end. Uh, But I think she... I really believed in her conviction for wanting to go after them. Yeah, yeah. She of all the of all the kind of law enforcement involved, I feel like she was impacted the most by the drug and the culture around it. I would agree. Caitlin Deaver as well, Betsy, I think is is brilliant. Oh, I mean that's I mean again, well done. I mean that's a really difficult storyline. That can't have been easy to perform any of that 
from the fact that there's an LGBT struggle there as well as an addiction struggle. There's, and in middle America, no less as well, in a very, very small-minded mining town, is there's a lot of material for her to, to bite into and she she grabs it with both hands. Let's, let's put it that way. Mm. And such a really good support and cast around her, like the mum and the dad yep. and those relationships and then how it sort of fits into the sort of the wider picture with Michael Keaton as the doctor. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of connections between characters which come kind of clean as well come clear, not clean. Uh the more you watch the show as well towards the end. It all kind of the strands all come together in, in certain respects. And I'm assuming that that's based on real people from the book. I've not read the book. I think all of them are a kind of composite of people that were involved in uh the book and I going to be really terrible now and not be able to remember it so as i'm talking i'm also googling just to get the name of it but i'm not sure that they were all directly people i don't think there really is like a dr phoenix i think dr phoenix is a, is a mix of people that were part of the case against purdue at the time oh, okay. so it's based on the book uh a dope so the book's called dope sick uh, it's dope sick semicolon dealers doctors and the drug company that addicted america is by the author beth macy and uh, there isn't even a link to tell me about the book so on Wikipedia. So without doing some further research, I'm not 100% sure. But obviously there are certain players who are real and others who are, I think, composites of people that were involved in the investigation. Anything else you want to say about Dopesick? What do I want to say about Dopesick? I think this is a very powerful programme. I think it's a very important programme. And I think it's one you should definitely watch. But again, if you are somebody who's living with or impacted by chronic pain, please don't make any rash decisions purely based on watching this program. So I would say go and speak to your GP, your pain specialist, or have a look at a reputable website to get some more advice if you want to learn a little bit more around chronic pain management or the use of these medicines. So by all means, please have a look at things like the British Pain Society, and pain concern or opioid aware there's some really useful resources out there to help give some unbiased insightful information about this type of um, medication use brilliant i think that's very succinct advice that it comes from a fan and medical background at the same time well i don't want to give blanket advice to everybody it's you know no, everybody's I, I know you always worry about uh, accidentally giving out medical advice <laughs> because you know you don't know everyone's medical history well, I mean it's such a personal thing chronic pain as well and everybody's experience of it mm. is completely individual and these yeah. medicines may work for some and not for others so you've got to take a really individualised approach to it and I think while this programme is really important to show a very difficult period of time it's not a catch all for everybody so if it's if you're impacted by it please seek some specialist advice by somebody who knows your background not a random person on a podcast <laughs> and from dope sick uh, we take you to another uh, very real world representation of events by having a little discussion on the legacy of the matrix because <laughs> it's so real and close to life uh, but with the matrix resurrections coming out in cinemas uh, in the uk on december the 22nd i thought now was a good time to just go over the cinematic legacy of the uh, the trilogy that is The Matrix so far and talk about what we might be excited for with The Matrix Resurrections. Tell me about your first uh, experience of The Matrix. What do you remember? Oh, my first experience of it. Mm. Oh, it's a very long time ago now. Well, I know. was but a wee laddie. Dive back in your memory and tell us about how you became involved with this franchise. I, I was never personally involved in it. They never asked me. Um, I would have loved to have been asked, though, because, you know, that would have been nice. But as a, as a young boy, I always remember getting very excited by the the first flippy out phone. Yeah. That was very exciting. It wasn't a flippy out, it slipped down, didn't it? Yeah. You, you pressed a button on the side of it and it sort of jutted out. <laughs> Did yep. that little <laughs> sound? Yeah, I mean, I, I love The Matrix. I've always loved The Matrix. I've always 1999, thought, so you would have been 10. I was 10, yeah. I was too young to see it in the cinema. I feel like I was older when the first one came out, but no, I was 14. Wow. Yeah, I had to wait for it to come out on home video. Oh. Or did I? I think I did see it in the cinema, actually. I think we went to... I think I went with my dad, and we did that thing where I pretended to be 12. Because I was quite tall for my age. Yep. I was like, yes, I am 12. <laughs> yes, so I, I am 12. Yes. 
I also have one of those mobile phone devices, for I am old. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, it's hard to avoid the fact that the, the first Matrix film was an absolute revelation in cinema. I mean, it changed everything. How many films featured, like, stylish... Uh, floor-length leather jackets and sunglasses combos after this and not only to the sort of the adventure of bullet time and there weren't that many films that really went in as heavily on visual effects as this film did so i think it's hard to argue with the fact that the matrix left a massive legacy on cinema maybe more so than the other two but what was it about the first one that you loved everything (laughs) okay anything in particular (laughs) everything okay well, it's everything you could want from a film. It's got high sci-fi concept. We've got some like proper martial arts, flippy whippy, wire work, guns, explosions, leather coats, Keanu Reeves. I mean, it's just an all-rounder, isn't it? <laughs> Spaceships. I, do you? How do you feel about the fact that it became such a cultural phenomenon? With the fact that it then went into games, it went into anime. It obviously had sequels. It's do you feel like the legacy is deserving? Yes. I guess the first one is your favourite of the three as well. Yeah. So I don't think I saw the first one at the cinema. I definitely saw the second and third ones at the cinema. Um, I think I came to the first one on DVD as one of the first DVDs I ever owned. Uh, and I remember diving down a rabbit hole. Good choice of words. Wait. On bonus features and making of and Easter eggs. I owned Enter the Matrix, which I thought was a brilliant game, which obviously tied into the films. Oh, I had uh, that. And it had uh, Going Under by Evanescence in the end credits, which I thought was amazing. Um, it just, it really was unavoidable as a cultural phenomenon at the time, I think. But what what do you think it is about it that made it catch on like that? You, should, you asked, I felt like you were going to say all the things I just said. All the things I just said, obviously. Oh, Because um, it's so different, isn't it? I mean, there was nothing like it beforehand. No. And Completely was, original idea. And I think because it tells such a complex, intertwined story that it can mean pretty much anything you want it to mean. So you're instantly connecting with it on a very personal level. And I think this is something that people, maybe in the general audience, often underestimate. But there is a huge amount of philosophy and academia that goes on about the themes that are in The Matrix. Well, we spoke about it in my recent research module because it was all around how to explain what is epistemology and ontology. Watch The Matrix because it Mm. is that... What is real and what isn't. What is real and how do you know what's real and what is knowledge? And the the first Matrix really sums that up quite nicely. I mean, there is, for all we know, we are batteries in a machine somewhere and this isn't real. Uh, A black cat did just walk past the door twice. So that could be a glitch in The Matrix or it could just be Ollie running around the house. I think he's probably just bored. I mean, he's doing his (laughs) patrols. (laughs) He's just doing his afternoon patrol. It's just the. I, it's so easy to just watch it and think this is a great film and not think about the things that they were doing that were completely groundbreaking. Like, I know you had never watched any of the bonus features particularly before, but I sat you down and watched how they did bullet time and you were like, what the hell? Well, they invented a whole new technology. Yeah, but just the, the fact that they were like, how can we make this look cool if we take a still image of like a hundred different cameras circling this guy and stitch them together, then we can actually like make a sort of 3D rendered image. Brilliant idea. How did nobody have that idea before? Absolutely genius. And yes, unfortunately, it became so heavily overused after that, but it only became heavily used after that because they were trailblazers. Obviously, one of the most famous stories from the original trilogy is the fact that they wanted uh, a character to be representative of the the trans audience. Uh, I'm now not going to be able to remember the name of which one of them it was. Uh, It was Switch, wasn't it? Obviously, that makes perfect sense. Played by Belinda McClory, who was going to be male outside of the Matrix and female inside the Matrix. And the idea was which one of them was how they actually saw themselves. And that was a concept that the studio just wasn't quite ready for at the time, which I'm sure they would be now, because in terms of representation, it's incredibly forward-thinking. But that's just one of the the many things that the Wachowskis put in there. I mean, obviously, they went through their own journey uh, to become Lana and Lily as they are now, and it's Lana who is the one that is the driving force behind this new film, 
What I'm interested in, given that you're such a huge fan, is how you feel about the fact that they went back and made two more movies. Did you feel like this should have just been the one? Or when they announced that they were going to make this into a trilogy, was that something that you were excited by? Well, there was only 10, so obviously it was. <laughs> I suppose, yeah, that's, that's true. That's quite true. You maybe didn't have the uh, adult thinking power to say, uh, I'm not sure that thematically this requires two more films. Yeah, no, I don't think I agree with this ontological exploration of this character. I feel like one film is enough. I was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> more Matrix. And so how did you feel? What do you think about, it's maybe not fair to lump both those films in together. Um, how do you feel about the sequels? I thought they were all right. I think they, it went a little bit too far away from the original core of the story. Um, I liked what they did, sort of building the world and going to Zion and taking on the machines in a different way. I don't know. I don't know if they could have done it any other way that would have been better. I don't know. I'm not sure that there is a way that they could have done it better either. I, I, I think because they released them both in 2003, I struggle to remember what happens in each one separately like i couldn't tell you where the end point of two is and the beginning point of three is it's one big story to me um like a part one and a part two more than anything uh but i don't know there is there's something about it that doesn't quite live up to the first one isn't there it was never going to live up to the first one though because it was such a left field yeah that to then do that again it was an impossible task yeah do you think that the fact that so many other films and directors copied the whole bullet time and and similar themes like that to the matrix took away from the impact of the second and third one i don't think you can take away from the impact of the first one i think that will always be a phenomenon but do you feel like we'd seen so much of that style that by the time the second and third came around it was like oh more of this yeah i mean i suppose you're expecting them to do something that's never been done before again yeah, and how often can you do something that's never been done before? Which is unlike... I mean, they did do some really cool stuff. So when Neo was fighting all the agents yeah. in the outside courtyard, I mean, that was a massive fight and a lot of CGI that had probably never been done before. And it was done very well. Yeah, they did some amazing stuff in creating... Uh, so they kind of went more down a CGI route with the second and third one, didn't they? Uh, so creating all of those visual effects of the multiple... Uh, Agent Smith and stuff like that is very is very cool and very they're huge accomplishments for cinema at that period. They do look a bit dated now though. But they still stand the test of time. Mm. If you compare it to some more recent films. Yeah, 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 absolutely. We've got some really dodgy CGI. <laughs> you think, my God, the Matrix did that better. Yeah. I mean, look at Lord of the Rings. That has really stood the test of time. Yeah, true. It has. Yeah, like, no, it hasn't. Awful <laughs> film. Awful. It's like Game of Thrones. It looks cheap. Oh, it does not, you liar. I think that although the second and the third one didn't have the same kind of visual impact as the first one, I do think that thematically there was still a lot. And I still think you can spend a lot of time unpacking a, a lot of what happened in the second and third one. There you go. That's your PhD. <laughs> and were you... Did you? How, so you said you, you owned a copy of Enter the Matrix. Um how much did you dive into the the wider Matrix world? So stuff like the Animatrix and, and bits and pieces of the, the wider media like that? Uh, I didn't really, to be honest with you, because I didn't really have access to all that. Okay. I absolutely... I think the Animatrix ended up being... So I saw the Matrix on DVD and I thought it was awesome. And then the Animatrix came around. I was in I was in art school at the time. I was in college where I was doing my multimedia BTEC. Um so I remember us all stopping in graphic design class to be like, oh, uh, like part one of the Animatrix is now out online because they released some of them in shorts online, uh, which probably took us hours to download in like not even HD. And I can remember watching um, the, I'm not going to remember the name of it now, which is terrible. I remember the first flight. It's not that one. That's the CGI animated one that comes up first. Uh, what's the, there's the two part sort of really, um, straightforward anime style one which i'm gonna forget the name of and i need to know second renaissance how could i forget it's called a second renaissance uh of which part one and part two tells the story of how earth fell to the robots and i absolutely that was the moment when the matrix for me became like a thing that i loved because that story was so it was i think it was the representation of humanity and it was just really grim and you know me, I love Grimm. <laughs> so it was 
the, I, I'm sure you've seen it. So the the story is that we invent AI. Eventually, humanity begins to turn on robots because we feel like they have too much automation. And there's a horrible scene where they almost recreate the idea of like Tiananmen Square, where humans are grabbing at humanoid-looking robots. There's a there's a female robot screaming as they rip the skin off her. So like she's had a she's had her clothes ripped off, so she's naked, and then they tear off the skin to show that she's a robot underneath. And they're beating her with um with like baseball bats, and she's doing this horrible robotic scream. And, I don't know, something about that really resonated with me at the time. That was like, this is the futility of humanity, that we're that desperate to survive that we turn on our own creation. And then when it gets to the point that humanity is so desperate that we, because we've made the robots that they're powered by sunlight, that we nuke our own society to block out the sun in the hope that that would kill off the robots and still we end up losing. Something about that I just really love. I do love a dystopian future. Well, I mean, it's just very representative to culture today, really, where we sort of turn on our own because they're different to what we perceive as being normal. And then you've got that idea of sort of flogging them in the streets because they're different. Get them. Well, it goes back to the old idea that Buffy was really just an analogy for for growing up, that the demons were a literal representation of the demons of being an adolescent. And I think the Matrix ended up being a wonderful analogy for just how awful humanity is. But that was that was the moment for me that I really got bought into it. Now we don't know much about the Matrix Resurrections. There's been a new teaser this week, which has shown some of the characters from the new film uh, recreating shots from the first films. So certain scenes like uh, Neo with his mouth melting being recreated by Jonathan Groff's character. There's there's lots of moments where this new film is apparently going to reflect things that happened in the first ones. So. Is history repeating itself? There's even the shot where Neo and Trinity are watching themselves with one of their stunt scenes on TV. So is it very meta? Is is it repeating itself? What do we think is going on? What do you think is the next logical step for the story? I have no idea. No? I mean, I couldn't even begin to fathom how you would no. develop that story. Any further. I don't think anyone expected there to be another Matrix film. Lana Wachowski said in an interview this week that Warner Brothers has basically approached her every year and said, can we make another Matrix? 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 And there was a point where I think they were developing something Matrix-related with someone not a Wachowski. And I'm pretty sure she said that that was the point where she went, okay, if we're going to do this, like, we have to do this, not someone else that wasn't there when when we created this. Not Steve from marketing. Not Steve from marketing. And yes, it is only Lana and not Lana and Lily. I don't know what Lily's involvement is. Lily has... I mean, the two of them have very much stepped back from working in film all that much these days. But clearly she felt like there was a story that she wanted to tell. And both Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss said they read it and went, well, absolutely no way am I turning this down. So clearly they there is a story that the people involved with it feel is important to tell. I just don't know what it is. I have to wait and see. I've got long to go now. No, nope, December the 22nd. So uh, just over three weeks time Ooh, no to... sorry under three weeks time it's like two and a half weeks time we'll have to book to see when we get back to Edinburgh uh, so it, it comes out the day that we fly up to Edinburgh for Christmas so Edinburgh. yes indeed but I think it'll be hopefully a nice way to reclaim the fact that people look at the second and third one as not being as great of a product as the third one and to claim back that narrative and really dive back into the thematical elements of the Matrix trilogy so I'm very very excited Ooh, the thematical elements of the Matrix. Indeed, you do. A constant uh, search for what is reality knowledge. Exactly. Uh, if you're excited for the Matrix, then uh, let us know. As I said earlier in this podcast, you can find us on social media at Get Your Comic On. Final topic for discussion in this week's podcast is uh, season three of Doom Patrol which has aired on HBO Max in the US and is now fully available. Here in the UK, it is, I believe, now streaming on Stars Play, which is available through Apple TV and other such places. Um, I don't know how many episodes. I keep searching iTunes, and I'm like, ooh, there's artwork for season three there. Uh, but I don't know how many episodes have aired so far, but it is available on Stars Play in the UK. We have recently just binged the back half of the season to be able to finish it, and I would like to know what you think of it as a huge Doom Patrol fan. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Would you say your favourite season of the three to date? I wouldn't say it was my favourite series of the three to date. Okay. But I did enjoy it. I think I would say it's my favourite, 
Would you say season one is your favourite just because of the introduction and all the wackiness that we were just not used to from DC TV? Yeah, maybe. I think that and a bit of series two as well. Okay. But the first half of series two. Yep. So what were your favourite elements in this third season? So I think by the end of it, they really are the Doom Patrol. Doom Force! Or Doom Force, whatever you want to call them. But I think it's it's taken a long time. It's taken three years or three series to get to that point. And I think they've they've all gone on their journey. And I think they're, they're finally happy with who they are and that they're ready to be heroes. Yeah, I think this season has very much been about them learning to be the characters that we know from the comics a bit more. I feel like we've gone on a three-season origin story to bring them to where they are. And I, I think I applaud them for doing that because there's no immediate payoff but there are payoffs in other respects. And I feel like we've grown to love those characters so much that, for instance, I would imagine you as, a, as someone who I think you would say Rita is your favourite character, must have absolutely adored the back half of season three. Yeah, because it's all, it's all about Rita. I don't know that it's all about her, but her, her becoming, spoiler alert, who is sort of the de facto leader of the team now, I think is, is huge for her character. Given in the pilot, she wouldn't leave the house. Yeah. yeah. In three years, she's gone from someone who couldn't leave the house to a de facto superhero. A badass superhero. <laughs> yeah. With a big personality. <laughs> a very big personality, yes. So, uh, season three, obviously brings in Michelle Gomez as Madame Rouge, uh, not often referred to as Madame Rouge either, which was actually a bit of a surprise. And I think a different version of her character as well, not quite who she is in the comics. So what do you think about that? How did you find... I mean, Michelle Gomez, let's just let's just say it now, is amazing in absolutely everything that she's in, and I love her, and she's hilarious. But how do you feel about her in, in this? I think she fits in perfectly, and I really liked her journey throughout the show. Uh, and I guess she's just amazing, really. As someone who's read the comics, how do you feel about this character not quite being as she is in the comics? Uh, probably quite good, because in theory she would kill Rita. <laughs> yes, so she would have killed off your favourite character. So that was a bit of a concern. Yeah. Um, but and at the same time, I think what they've done with her and how it's fitted in with the wider series, it, it works really well. I think it works really well as well. I I spent the entire season anticipating that she would do some of the typically Madame Rouge stuff, and she didn't, so... It was a surprise, but she also wasn't not Madame Rouge. It wasn't like, here's a character, we're calling her this from the comics, but she's not her. I still felt like she was her in some respects. It was just a different way to approach her, and I felt it fit in with the tone of the season. Obviously, we because of COVID, this, this series was shot slightly differently, so we didn't have uh, the wonderful Sir... Uh, Sir James Bond. Sir James Bond. I was to call him Roger Daughtry. That's not right, is it? Oh, God, no. <laughs> Timothy Dalton. Roger Daltrey. What the, how did I get to the who? Uh, yeah, so we didn't have... Who knows? We didn't have Timothy Dalton this season. So how did, how did that dynamic shift for you? I think it was probably a better dynamic because it's less about him and it's more about them. Now, I've obviously read a lot less Doom Patrol comics than you have. Are the comics more about him? So at the end of the Grant run, he is the big villain. Mm-hmm. So it is, he does have a big part in it towards the end. Um, but I think week by week, it's not massively about him. Okay, it's interesting. Because it obviously has very much focused on him and his dynamic as the father figure. In the show, that is. Yeah, in the comics, he's a horrible, horrible man. He's just he's not very paternalistic at all. He's just very rude and does what he does. I feel like this has been a very consistent season in terms of writing, and in that way it's reflected Titans. I feel like Titans really stepped up its game with its writing this season as well. Would you agree with that? Do you feel like they, maybe because of COVID and producing, as in actually physically filming and everything slightly later, it gave them more time perhaps to work on the story and it was tighter. But do you feel like that was, did that reflect for you? Yeah, no, I'd agree. It was a very tight story. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was, as is the same with season one and two, it was heavily serialised, but it felt like there was a, a very strong, defined journey for each of the characters this season. Not all of which ended with the end of this season either. So Jane obviously didn't have a complete story. We we found her in a place at the beginning of the season. We've left her in a different place, but by no means have we come to a kind of conclusion in what's going on with her at the moment. Mm. 
Cyborg, I felt, was a little sidelined this season. Yeah, I don't really know what's going on with him. I'm not sure what's going to happen next because he's no longer the cyborg that we love and know. Yeah, I feel like he is... I mean, he was always the kind of rogue element because he's not a member of the Doom Patrol, is he? No, not massively. And so I think we always felt like he was a bit of a plant of a more famous character in the show. And I still don't quite know what his purpose in being there is. Although I love Joven Wade, he plays him incredibly well. I just feel like I'm not quite sure what that character's purpose is when we come to the end of season three. Yeah, if it's he'd be more suitable as a Titan than a mm, yeah he doomer. would yeah he could cross over very easily to Titans at this point as he could have at any point in the last three years. This season obviously went very it aimed very high with its villains with the Brotherhood of Evil and the Sisterhood of Dada. The Brotherhood of Evil required a lot of visual effects work and some CGI stuff going on there. So how do you feel like? A show with a limited budget was able to do that. I mean, I thought they did it very well. I mean, the monkey wasn't great. Yeah, that was the thing that concerned me the most was how they would do the the CGI ape gorilla man, and it was very CGI, but not bad. It was still better than Click and Drag Supergirl. <laughs> Click and Drag Supergirl is that that's not something we should talk about. But yes, this was better. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't amazing CGI, but it was much better than CW CGI. Have you reached a point where you think you would like to see this show connect with some of the other DC shows? Maybe, And I don't mean like, let's f- stick it in as part of a CW crossover event, but just in general, would you like to see that? Or are you happy that they kind of continue to be uh, where they are as a sort of isolated world? I think I'm happy to see them where they are. I think they've done a couple of other nice nods to be, what did they say? Something like, oh, where's the Justice League when you need them? Yeah, they were mentioned. So I think it would be nice just to sort of have a little bit more of those links because they, they did do that in series one with Gar. Yeah, true. You know, that was the the backdoor pilot of Doom Patrol and Titans. So it would it'd be nice if they could pull on that string a little bit more and just reinforce that they're in the same universe and they've still got that connection. I think that would be really nice. But it sounds like they're not going to do that. So, no, they seem to be keeping them very, very separate. Which I guess has its it serves its purpose. But I still think there's nice ways to be on the same Earth without being completely beholden to what's going on in each of the shows. Yeah, because I think there's a really nice relationship between Gar and Rita that I would like yeah. to see a bit more. Yeah, they could have explored that much more, and they they haven't been able to do that because that would have given him a lot more to work with as well. Because would have given him his passion for being an actor because he yeah. got that from Rita and that sort of mother-son type relationship. But we sort of lose all that a little bit. And that's probably why, well, it's no secret that he's not the happiest person in the cast, is he? Because no. he doesn't have a lot to do. So that would be a nice way for him to do something a bit more. Certainly would. Anything about season three of Doom Patrol that you weren't particularly keen on or was kind of a, a downside for you? So, I mean, I like the sisterhood of Dada. Mm. Um, unfor- when the, uh, not unfortunately um, in the comics they are the Brotherhood of Dada yep so they, they did a bit of regendering there and they're head up by Mr Nobody oh yeah so he wasn't back this season yeah. I'd t- kind of forgotten that he was involved with the Brotherhood so no we didn't really see he there was no presence for him this season was there no so it would be nice if they had a nod to him at some point mm. um, there was a couple of nods that I did notice that the man with the bike wheels yep. on his back he had a Brotherhood of Dada necklace with yeah. the eye, which is really nice. The small details are always there. And I'm always amazed by how they keep track of everything going on in the underground with Jane as well. The The sheer volume of characters and the relationships between each of those has got to be really difficult to track. And they seem to somehow do it really effortlessly. I don't want to say too much because we'll go into spoilery territory. And, and like I said at the beginning of this, I don't really know how much of it is available in the UK yet. So I don't want, I don't want to spoil the journey for fans too much, but it is... Well, do I even need to ask you whether you would recommend for people to watch it? I probably would. Question for you then, uh, just to leave this on a bombshell, I would obviously recommend this to watch as well. Uh, Which have you preferred this season? Titans or Doom Patrol? Oh, Doom Patrol. Mm, Okay, there you go. That is incredibly high praise indeed from Martin there. Uh, As I said, Doom Patrol Season 3 is available to stream in the US on HBO Max and in the UK it is airing as we speak on Stars Play. Can I change my answer? Uh, go on. I'm going to say Stargirl. Oh, okay. Ooh. So Stargirl was your favourite this season. Yeah, out of the three, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, I suppose they're... 
Stargirl is coming onto HBO Max, but you know, she was a CW show this year. Well, she started off in HBO, though, didn't she? Well, she started off in DC Universe, but you know. Well, it's the same thing. They all came from the same place. Yeah. They all come from a place of love. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, that about wraps things up for this week. We'll be back. Uh, well, we were aiming to have our last show of the year out next week, so we may we'll be back in sort of a week's time. We'll see how the scheduling figures out. Um, but we will be back soon with another episode as we wrap up 2021. And he said 2022 there, bringing you our lists of our favourite comics, our favourite TV shows and our favourite films of the year. So have a think about what your favourites might be and feel free to suggest them to us on social media. Do not forget that you can read the latest news over on our website, which is www.getyourcomicon.co.uk. And just to repeat what I have said twice already in this podcast, but you can find us on all social media at Get Your Comic Con. You can find me at Neil Vag and Marshall is at Boy Wonder nineteen eighty nine on Twitter and Boy Wonder eighty nine on Instagram. I always forget which one is the nineteen eighty nine and which one is the eighty nine. Uh, but you get a pleasant surprise if you look for the other one and you get it wrong because it's not him. Uh, so until next time, stay safe, stay well. Bye. Bye.